0: Brian, thanks for being here.
1: Ah, it's a lot of fun to be here with you, Justin. Thanks for inviting me on.
0: Yeah, no, I'm excited about this. When I thought about doing a podcast, it was exactly this kind of thing I wanted to do. Inviting people in who are not in my usual field of expertise, which is politics, to talk about things that are interesting to me and hopefully interesting to a lot of people. Yeah, so.
1: yeah it's so much fun. That's uh, It's great to break out of the shells. You know, I used to say... Whenever I give a public lecture, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I hate astronomers. You know, <laughs> I, I, I hate that Republican comet over there and that Democrat <laughs> asteroid over there, and that libertarian uh, meteor over there. Nobody says that. They, uh, they, you know, pretty much everything you guys in Congress could agree upon was usually, you know, motherhood, apple pie and funding science. So it's a pleasure <laughs> to be here speaking with, uh, with someone who's uh, been such a hero for so many.
0: Thanks. Thanks so much. Well, I did read, read your book, Losing the Nobel Prize, and it struck me as I was reading it that there was a lot that was similar to politics <laughs> yeah. in the book. A lot of the, um, the way it was, it was competitive, or it is competitive as a, um, a field, the way the media interacts with your uh, profession – those were fascinating things to me. I have wondered, because this is a, a thing that uh, troubles me a lot in my political work, at least when I was in Congress, is that the media are not always very familiar with what you're doing, what with what's actually happening. They're basing it off of talking points that are simplified um, – You know, discussions of the bill. And I can't imagine how much worse it must be in physics, where your issues are so complex. So, how do the media have the appropriate level of understanding in a field like cosmology, where the thing is well beyond the average person's ability and well beyond even very intelligent people's ability. How do, how do the media, I'm not saying that the media aren't bright. I'm saying, it seems to me if they were so trained in the field that they understand it, they might actually be in physics and not journalists. Yeah. So how do they, how do they do it?
1: Well, I think, you know, it comes down to, you know, the most important trait I think for a scientist is a trait that we're all basically born with, and we have to acquire the ability to lose it over time, which is curiosity. So, you know, my motto is always be curious, A, B, C, and and it's more important, I think, to be curious than to be passionate, because passion is kind of temporary, it could be dictated by external forces, uh, it could be, you know, uh, not really intrinsic or sustainable. Whereas curiosity, I think, everybody's curious about the natural world. Like I said, nobody, you know, is born with a disposition against an aspect of science. Um, I think that you have to cultivate that. And uh, just as you have to work to acquire perhaps a regimented, more political aspect of, of allying for and against different scientific traits, it's, it's, it, it does have similarities with politics in that sense. On the other hand, you know, I felt for a long time, Justin, that, that we, sh- we we desperately need a politics-free zone. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. not for safe spaces. I'm not for coddling and teddy bears and Anybody can speak i 've spoken to everybody on my podcast, left and right and center now, uh, thanks to you uh, But i've had a, a a great deal of 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 joy from seeing different perspectives, and I think that's what ultimately science is about. you know the word science in Latin means means knowledge it doesn't mean wisdom uh, wisdom means sapience sapienza is what we are as human beings. Um, we are homo sapien, so we are not walking wikipedia's like your previous guest jimmy wales great interview with him (laughs) uh you know computers are a lot smarter than i'll ever be or einstein ever was but they have no wisdom and so i think that ability to separate out facts and knowledge which can be political from wisdom which ultimately shouldn't be i think that's the job of a good science journalist and explicator of science and i actually think that we as scientists have the first primary obligation. So I'm very uh, unpopular among the faculty club, you know, because I actually think that we as scientists have a moral obligation to explain what we do in terms people can understand because every uh, scientist ever, you know, uh, produced in America was publicly supported at some point. Um, There's no such thing as an entirely privately supported individual who Mm -hmm. did anything of interest or note. And so because of that, I think we have an obligation to pay back. And the problem is, most well, scientists aren't really good at it, uh, at explicating what they do. And I sympathize with that. I wasn't good at it. I started a YouTube channel a couple of years ago during COVID. The only like positive thing that came out of COVID, except I got to spend more time with my wife and kids maybe. Uh, but uh, but I started to explain these revolutionary breakthroughs in experimental astrophysics, in particle physics, in cosmology, in the theory of time. And these are the things that take us away from from the mundane quotidian Nonsense. I'm sorry to say, politics, squabbling, partisanship, polarization—that really sucks the life out of me personally. I know some people thrive on it, and I'm not condemning what politicians do in any way. But, um, but there is uh, there is a, a need for a safe space where we can go talk about the biggest picture. Top, the topics that you talked about, you thought about when you were on that dorm room couch at uh, University of Michigan, uh, you know, just just shooting the crap and uh, looking, thinking of Dane, uh, and tonight about the biggest picture issues in, in life, the ultimate issues that really animate and make us unique. So when
0: you're dealing with the media, do you find that they generally have enough of a grasp of what you're saying um to to write about it in a way that can be then transferred over to the average person in the public? Or is or does it really depend on the the scientist, the physicist, like If you are particularly good at explaining it to the media, they will do a good job explaining it to the public. And if you're not very good at it, they're going to be totally confused.
1: Yes and no, Uh, but it's like anything else. Like when you started this podcast, Justin, I'm sure you'll admit, you know, there's no one skill called podcaster. Like (laughs) you you can't even like go to school and if you could, that'd be great. You know, you could, you could skip the line, but you really can't, right? It's a hundred thousand micro skills, guest promotion uh, marketing, um, uh, you know, takeaways, transcripts, you know, all the channels that you have to deal with. It's all these micro skills. And science is like that too. Uh, so there's, no, there's no one occupation scientist. It's, it's a thousand little micro skills that all come together. Some are more difficult to acquire than others. Uh, some are more ambiguous, uh, you know, kind of in their attainment than others. But it's like anything else. You know, I talk to my colleagues, mostly the older crowd, you know, who maybe look down on what I do because I do YouTube, And I do, you know, call in, I do Twitter, you know, they might say, Oh, well, that's not what a serious scientist should do. And, you know, and then I'll ask, Well, why not? Why don't you do it? And they'll usually say, Well, I'm not good at it, as if it's a badge of honor. And I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, George uh, uh, Bush, Sr., H.W. Bush. And he was once asked, you know, like, describe the deficit. And back then, y'all laughed, the deficit was like $700 billion. <laughs> now it's like a thousand <laughs> times, right? right? Uh, but anyway, uh, back in the early, mid-80s or whatever. And uh, he said, if, to give you context, you know, just imagine that's a $100 bill stacked on top of each other all the way to the moon. And I'm like, how many people know how far away the moon is? How many people know, like, what $100 bill is thick- Like, what does that convey? It's just explaining one incomprehensible number in terms of another incomprehensible number. And so I said, uh, you know, to my colleagues, I say, well, you didn't get born, I don't think, learning quantum field theory, special relativity, you know, uh, decay of particles and, and fields. No, 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 I had to work at that. Oh, 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 so, so you work at that which you believe to be important to you, don't you? Yes. Oh, I do. It's very important. Well, why isn't it communicating to the very people that pay our salaries, you know, the general public? Because if the public loses faith in science, and I hope we can talk about Hype in science, and kind of uh, a lot of stuff that you know that, that we do in science that does a disservice to science itself. By scientists, we don't need any help, thank you very much. We can do a disservice to ourselves, all fine by ourselves. But you know, the communication of science and the uh, the explication of what we do is more critical than ever. And we're not ever teaching it. We're never communicating. How do you how do you talk to the press? How do you talk to a funding agency? How do you talk to a politician? Uh, because these are things that we are have been gifted, the most incredible script. It's like you're like a cut-rate actor, and here you go. Here's like the collected works of Shakespeare, or you know Jerry Bruckheimer, you know whoever you want uh, as a great, and you get to act. I have been given the greatest script of all time, the scientific method, the scientific tradition of heroes and giants, and it's up to me not to flub it. Yeah. So, that that I think is should be viewed as a gift, and we view it as a burden. And I think that's I think that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, and your work reminds me a little bit about my work in Congress, where you are working with people who are typically much older, or very often people who are at the top of the field are much older. And this is something you talked about in your book that a lot of the people winning Nobel prizes are much older and that has increased over time and similarly in politics you have the situation where the average person in congress is something like 60 you know 465 or 62 depending on the year um, years old right and it is true that sometimes they don't understand what the younger people coming up in the field are doing and i experienced this a lot in politics when i uh, was first starting out i was using facebook and later Twitter to explain what I was voting on to the public and people thought it was so out of the ordinary mm-hmm. and a lot of the – what I'd call the political establishment and this included people in the media thought that it was actually a little bit offensive even, mm-hmm. that instead of doing it the traditional way, I was going straight to the people through Facebook and I had journalists who would come up to me and say, what are you doing? You're supposed to talk to us. You're not supposed to just you know post something on Facebook <laughs> or post something on Twitter and um, you know it sounds like that's something you experience in your field too, where there's a little bit of like a an old way of doing things and it runs into people who have different ideas about how to do it
1: yeah there's there's definitely you know kind of this this incongruity between what you know kind of makes science. Wonderful on one hand is, is sort of a meritocratic approach. You know, there is a truth. The truth is out there. We can find it if we apply the, the you know, rules and consensus building that's necessary to accomplish the scientific method. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot of gatekeeping and I call it the academic hunger games. You know, to get where I am, Justin, just to give you a little bit of a background, you know, I had to do pretty well in in, in high school uh APs, SATs, and I'm not even, I wasn't ever very good. I'm an experimental physicist. I'm not a theoretical physicist like you might have heard of Brian Greene or Michio Kaku or Neil deGrasse Tyson. These are theoreticians or Albert Einstein, the most famous of all time. And so I don't do that. I, I build experiments like working on your car. I mean, I actually worked on my 1979 Volkswagen Rabbit and gave me a lot of skills to do experimental uh, astrophysics and build telescopes.
0: <laughs> so when so when you say you do uh, experimental physics versus the theoretical, do you feel that you don't necessarily have those particular skills to do the theoretical? Like those people have something special and then you've got something special when it comes to experimentation?
1: Correct. It's it's sort of like pitchers and, you know, infield players or batters, you know, and, and uh, everyone has their abilities, you know, pitchers are really held up for, you know, kind of their lone abilities, lone geniuses. And that's kind of where you have the Einstein mystique and the Feynman mystique and so forth. On the other hand, you know, people love the sluggers, they love the people that are actually getting the data and without people like myself and my colleagues that collect data that analyze the data that process the data uh there's There'd be no job, you know, uh, whatsoever, employment for the theoreticians. So the, the contrast is what I do is I build telescopes. Most of the telescopes I build are going to detect invisible signals, signals that the human eye can't detect no matter how powerful and amped up the signal was. Um, those signals then can be used to refine and iterate our knowledge about how the early universe unfolded, what the universe is composed of, what the future of the universe will be. We're talking you know, trillions of years from now, not like next year, so you know, keep paying your taxes, I always say. Uh, but we can get into that, the origin of time. These are things that are uniquely accessible to experiments and that theoreticians have no idea how to acquire these data. Once that Once we acquire it, process it, we can convey it in a way that is open to interpretation and then iteration on their theories, models, and then they can make future predictions. So I always say... An experimentalist has to do both. They have to know theory, but they don't have to be required to do new theory. So I have to understand, why am I like, measuring these, these faint radio waves you know, coming from outer space? Like Why am I doing that? If I didn't understand the theory, I couldn't really practically accomplish what I need to do. On the other hand, I don't need to come up with the theory that the Big Bang occurred or that there might be multiple universes or that there might be you know ghost particles or black, giant black holes. But I need to acquire the data, and to acquire the data requires that I understand the theory. But the converse isn't true. They typically, as a theoret- you know, Einstein didn't know. I have to know how the Mount Wilson telescope behaved in order to – I'm sure he did. But he didn't need to know that in order to discover the universe was expanding, for example.
0: So what is this special skill you have? Is it like an engineering skill that you understand how a telescope works and, and maybe someone in theoretical physics doesn't need to understand that?
1: Yeah, have you ever seen uh, the movie Taken, you know, with Liam Neeson? I've got a very particular uh, I... <laughs> set of skills, Justin. Um, <laughs> so a lot of what we do is um, is working on hardware. So we're doing uh, sophisticated design work. We're using 3D modeling. Uh, I'm doing a lot of 3D printing lately. Uh, we're doing stuff with very low vacuum, so incredibly dilute gases and exotic materials uh, like isotopes of helium that are so precious they cost, you know, $10,000 for a little tiny bottle of it. We take them to extreme temperatures. We bring them down to almost absolute zero, 200 and let me do it in Fahrenheit, 454 degrees below zero just colder than it gets in Michigan in the winter day uh not by much but uh but it will be um and uh we do that because we're looking for signals that are even fainter weaker more diffuse and more challenging to measure in a background on this lovely planet that we that we live on uh and so we're we're designing using engineering principles we are constructing using new physical laws like the behavior of superconductors that doesn't fall in the purview of engineering, at first, it's a, it's a physical phenomenon. How does something behave with zero resistance, for example? And how can it be used as a detector of these wispy ancient photon relics from the Big Bang? Uh, but we then have to design the telescope, which is an engineering project. It has to withstand atmospheric forces that are trying to crush it like a soda can uh, because it has this incredible vacuum inside. And we have to cool it down using exotic materials that are highly conductive. Thermally, but not optically. So it's a lot of engineering. It's a lot of basic physical principles, but it's not requiring, like, I have to theorize this new thing in order to build the instrument.
0: When you have something like one of your specialized telescopes, essentially, pointing up at the sky, why does it have to point for so long to get the data you need? Um, I've, you know, again, a lot of people listening are not scientists not experts i'm not certainly not an expert in this area although i'm very curious about all this stuff and and have read about it but why do you have to have it pointing for so long and um you know when you're talking about uh these particular waves that you're waiting to see aren't they always coming and going and (laughs) and what is it what is it that you're you're seeing by having it point at the same spot for so
1: long yeah, it's, I mean, it's not brain surgery, it's just rocket scientists, you know, what's, what's the big <laughs> deal? Um, no, it's, it's a very good question. So, um, when you look up at the night sky, you might be tempted, or if you look at pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, such as I've got uh, one by a, a picture behind me, and I, I show it in a lot of my videos, um, you, you have this impression that things in the sky are very bright, they're very big, they're very de- de- defined, uh, but that doesn't really, you know... Uh, give the adequate credit to how difficult it is to acquire these things. So, you know, for example, um, you can look at somebody on Instagram, uh, you know, and and you can say, well, they've got this incredible body, and 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 I'm not just speaking about you and me, uh, but uh, but you don't know how much filtration, how much processing, how much calibrate went into that image, and that's with a commercial consumer device, of which there have been about you know a hundred billion made over the past uh, half century that can detect these particles of light that we call photons. But have you ever taken your iPhone out in the night and even tried to take a picture of the moon, which is the second brightest thing in the Mm -hmm. entire sky? I've (laughs) tried, yeah. Yeah, it's totally horrible. You can't get anything out of it. And that's getting the second brightest thing in the entire heavenly orbs. (laughs) Uh, Now, imagine you're trying to see something, A, that is a trillion, trillion times less bright. And you're also seeing something that doesn't produce any significant amount of visible light whatsoever, And so when we look at light, we have to think about light as being on a continuum, a spectrum, uh, that can go from very, very long wavelength radio waves, such as the waves that are powering the Wi-Fi that you and I are speaking on. Those are radio waves, microwaves, all the way up to X-rays, gamma rays, the most highest energy penetrating radiation that there is. Uh, and different astronomical sources will emit different wavelengths or frequencies of those, uh, of light. So you have to build a very special detector Uh, in order to do that. In other words, your cell phone camera, if you point it at your Wi-Fi router, it doesn't do anything, right? Those are, they're both electromagnetic radiation. And it doesn't matter how long you sit there pointing, you'll never get a signal from the camera from your Wi-Fi. So instead, what we do with astronomy, these sources are incredibly weak, they're incredibly faint. In, In some cases, in the case of what I study, which is the leftover heat from the production of the very first elements on the periodic table, that light has been traveling for 13.8 billion years to get to my telescope. And it only spends, just for, just for example, it only spends about one nanosecond on my telescope. Um, so the light that's been traveling. So you're, you're talking about factors of trillions in time scales. And so the answer is to get a, a very high resolution and high sensitivity image, you have to acquire as many photons, as much information as possible. and uh, and, and so to do so, it requires a tremendous amount of acquisition, data acquisition time. And uh, that's, that's but one of the hurdles. And the painful thing is if you double the amount of time that you observe something, you actually don't double your sensitivity. To double your sensitivity, to be twice as sensitive as a previous measurement, you actually have to measure four times as long. It goes as the square of the amount of time in all astronomical phenomena. So, you know, when that time gets, you know, when you have one graduate student in my lab and, you know, she takes six years. If I say to the next one, you have to be twice as good as, as, as she was, no one's going to sign up to work in my lab. Uh, so it's a, you know, it has to be a cumulative kind of process because of the very faintness and the very distance of the objects we're talking about.
0: One of the things I wonder as I've read this book and, and listened to various um, physicists talk about it is we talk about the observable universe. Does this mean that there's another part of the universe that is not observable? And is it because there's no light? I, I, I try to understand what it means to have yeah. no light. Um, is it because no light was emitted during, during, that, during a particular time
1: period? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So what happens at the Big Bang? is uh, is still a very, very hot subject of, no pun intended, but it's a hot subject for a variety of reasons. A, there were no eyewitnesses. There was no detection system. There's no data that we're waiting for. We have a very accurate understanding of all the laws of physics, not the individual events that you, you and I are talking and there's an oxygen molecule right there and it's moving up, no, no. But we do understand the global properties of physics going back from today back 13.8 billion years, okay? Now imagine you just did that, and you come to, you're on a a Wednesday, you know, and and that happened to be the Big Bang, that particular day. At midnight that day was the Big Bang. Um, We understand all the way from that day, that Wednesday, uh, up until three minutes after midnight, we can replicate the physical processes that were occurring in a laboratory on Earth called the Large Hadron Collider. We can smash particles together, we can release tremendous amounts of photons and energy and we can do so liberally, literally a trillion times a second if we want to. To go beyond that, it's actually even worse than the, than the time scale that I told you a minute ago for collecting light. To go to higher and higher energies of collisions, it actually is—it uh, goes as the fourth power of the energy. So to get twice as sensitive. Uh, an energy, uh, a higher temperature, you need to have 16 times more collision energy. And the cost of an, a particle accelerator is going to scale with that cost. So in other words, to get twice as sensitive as the Large Hadron Collider, which costs $10 billion just to build, not even to operate, um, that cost $10 billion. You need $160 billion to build something just to build it. Okay. So what I mean is we understand all the laws of physics back to this mysterious point three minutes after midnight where the Big Bang happened at midnight. But we don't know if something happened 10 minutes before that three-minute mark. In other words, we don't know if there was another universe existing before our observable universe, and I'll define that in just a bit. But we don't know if there was another universe or if our universe is a singular phenomenon throughout what is now called the multiverse or the, the, the cosmos, if you will. So... We have to start with with a mind bending concept, which is that it could be that there is an infinite amount of space. There could be in all directions, left, right, up, down, backwards, and forwards, to infinity in each of those directions uh, in space. There could be points. There could be the existence of an empty space. Okay. Now, but it's not true that you could go back an infinite dimension direction in time. We don't know if that's possible. It may be possible that there was an infinite, there was a universe for all time. There were other universes. There was a collapsing universe. But we know that space could extend to infinite distance in all directions. Um, and so, if you imagine that there is this infinite set of monkey bars, you know, you're on the gym, you're at the playground. It extends in all directions, infinite in each direction. Then, um, then what you can say is that uh, when you wake up, you open your eyes, you can see back out into this monkey bar system you can see the age that you are times the speed of light that's the maximum distance that you could possibly see assuming that light travels at constant speed for all time that would be your observable universe and that's a very good analogy for what cosmologists think we understand up until this mysterious three minute mark um, when we cease to have ability to directly access the technology to explore energy ranges here on Earth, it doesn't mean we don't understand anything about them. It's just we can't, we can't replicate those conditions. So all that intuition is correct. Now imagine those monkey bars are expanding. And they're expanding for some very large period of time, even before you were born. So there will be regions of this infinite monkey bar system that can that you will see in the distance you will see some guy you know, waving at you in the distance who is now at a greater separation than your age times the speed of light. He could be 10 times that distance. He could be you know, 100 times that distance, just depending on how long the universe has been expanding or this monkey bar system has been expanding before he started waving at you. But you'll never be able to communicate with that person. That person will be expanding away from you, in this analogy, faster than the speed of light. Once he is beyond a given distance. So there are galaxies that we can see today just fine, but we'll never be able to, they will never see us today, and we will never see what's happening there today. We're seeing this frozen kind of pattern of light coming to us from a, uh, every galaxy that we see in the universe, with very few exceptions, and that is indicative of the universe's expansion. So what you can say for sure is that. The universe has been expanding for at least 13.8 billion years, with an uncertainty of uh, of only about one half of one percent. It's like me looking at you, never meeting you, and saying, "Justin, um, you know, I know your exact uh, your exact birthday or some other event." And I always say, "You know, what's the most important day on the calendar for you, Justin? Like, what, what's the most important uh, day on the calendar that happens every year for you personally?" My birthday. Your birthday. Everybody <laughs> says that, which you, yeah. you just, you just celebrated on April 18th. Uh, so when you look out in the, and uh, in, in everybody's, you know, everybody's saying the same thing when I asked them this question, some will say my anniversary or my kid's birthday, but they're all beginnings, right? So people mm-hmm. are fascinated with origins, origin stories. How did I come to be? How did, uh, you know, my child come to be? What's my anniversary? People are fascinated. The universe's origin is just like that. So You can learn about what happened before, you know, 1982, uh, but you can't necessarily know exactly for sure without eyewitness uh, that, you know, that you have to trust other people essentially. So what cosmologists are trying to do is expand that sphere by using as much technology as we can to learn more and more about what happened in those first three minutes of this universe.
0: So when you're looking back to um, light that is coming from, Uh, like 14 billion years ago isn't the universe way more compact at that time so aren't you seeing something that is quite different i mean it'd be quite different from what we have today right
1: yeah it's radically so does
0: it really does it really um it doesn't tell us anything about the position of these things today
1: well, it does and it doesn't. If I look back at you again on the day you were born, um, do I have no information about what you'll be like? Like, will you grow five arms later on? Not likely. <laughs> you get some constraints. It's a constrained realization of of what the universe was like. On the other hand, we don't believe that there were additional forces, you know, and fields, and the speed of light was changing. All all the constants of nature. We believe those are enduring constants that they don't change. That there wasn't, uh, you know, some other kind of force. Uh, called uh, you know style or you know in addition to gravity, uh, there wasn 't some new force that we don 't understand um, that was operative, so therefore, although the universe looked different and you 're absolutely right, the implication is that once you observe things expanding currently that yesterday they were closer together, and if you t- extrapolate back to a finite time in the past, you will come to a condition in which all the matter, all the structures in the universe was in contact, was physically touching in a radius, classically speaking, of zero dimension. So in other words, all that matter and energy in the universe was confined to a single zero-dimensional point. And that is, of course, the Big Bang. That's where it gets its name from. It was actually a pejorative. Uh, so there's a fa- famous astronomer named, by the name of Fred Hoyle, who is British, and he believed that the universe was eternal and what was called a steady state or a quasi-steady state, I don't have to get into that now, but uh, he coined this. But just to of- be
0: clear, when, when yeah. he's talking – sorry to interrupt, but when, when we're talking about steady state, does this mean it's kind of like um, like almost lava flowing out of a volcano or something? Like there's constant like just stuff coming out somewhere?
1: Well, there was uh, – yeah. I
0: tried to understand uh, the yeah. meaning of steady state. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's right. The space volcanoes were highly active at that point. Um, so, so there were many cosmological models that have gone in and out of favor – For millennia, since we have records from the ancient Egyptians of what I described earlier, like a cyclical cycling cosmos that goes through collapse and expansion or something like that. Then Aristotle really held sway for thousands of years that, um, and it's kind of puzzling to me because the guy got almost nothing right about any of the physical observation. He's a genius, political genius, you know that, uh, philosophical genius, codified the laws of logic, observed that whales are mammals. And the guy was good, but everything he said about physics was wrong. And yet people believed that even after they'd been established by Galileo, by Newton, by Einstein, that he is ro- completely wrong and inadequate, wholly inadequate. But anyway, he held the universe was static, meaning nothing changed. I mean, the planets moved, and that was it. The stars were fixed, and these celestial orbs. And that sway held forth for 2,000 years. And it really wasn't questioned Uh, Because actually, in a human lifetime, it's not a bad approximation to say the universe is static. And so even Einstein himself believed that the universe was static. And the reason that that was so controversial was that, um, or was not controversial, because that's what observation suggested. We look out in the Milky Way, and we see stars. And there's an equal number of stars coming towards the Earth as going away from the Earth. Just like you'd expect. I mean, not that it's perfectly static, but like sometimes all the planets are moving, you know, in in uh, with some speed, you know, towards the Earth on average, and then half the time they're moving away from the Earth. So all these things made sense if the universe was on average static and not expanding or contracting. The problem is, is that anything that has mass, including the universe itself, has only gravitational attraction. There's no way in a universe that has stars to get a static distribution of matter. Eventually, given enough time, the matter will start to coalesce and come together. And this was known since the time of Isaac Newton. Uh, And so Einstein believed that was true, that gravity was needed uh, in order to, some form of anti-gravity was needed to keep the matter from uh, condensing and collapsing to match our observations. And so in his treatise, he put into his equation a fudge factor to keep the universe static for all time. And that he called the cosmological constant, later called it his biggest blunder. And it's too bad, because he could have had a good career, Justin. You know, he he could have been the, <laughs> a contender. You know, uh, but, but in reality... So you know,
0: when, it, you say it's a, when you say it's a fudge factor, it's, it's something he believed had to exist, but he couldn't prove it?
1: He corrupted his equation. His equations were telling him that the universe should either be expanding or contracting. We now know it's expanding. And he refused to accept that, based on the limited observations that he had at the day. And so he put in a literal anti-gravitational force field called the cosmological constant. We call it dark energy today. Um, So he was actually right, (laughs) uh, but it turns out he was right for the wrong reason. We won't get into that um, uh, right now. But this fudge factor was an anti-gravitational force of a property of space itself, of the vacuum of space itself, he called it and that prevented things on cosmic scales from coalescing and thus violating the steady-stateness of the universe that he believed was true. So, you,
0: you've talked about um, confirmation bias, which is, uh, you know, that's a common problem in physics, as it is in all of our lives, in, in whatever we're doing. Um How has that been uh, a detriment to physics and and how can it be resolved? This idea that people have an idea of where they want to go with things and sometimes they're out just trying to prove the thing that they want to prove. And they're they're not as often um, as they should perhaps trying to work with an open mind and just whatever happens, happens.
1: Yeah. So the – the, the problem with science is that it's done by scientists, and the scientists are people. And scientists are just like anybody else, uh, I say, but more so. Uh, so it's often said scientists are childlike. I said that at the beginning of our conversation. You have to extinguish the curiosity. You know, my nine year old won't stop telling me ideas for inventions everything from, you know, creating new forms of bats to uh, an infinite energy generation source. And so he's naturally curious. All my kids are, and, and most kids are in general. It's just natural. What else are kids? They, they're, they're incredibly passionate. They view the world with wonder. Um, and, uh, and they're also, you know, and so like scientists are like children, so we're very curious. We view the world with wonder. We're transfixed by the magic of what we call scientific method and the production of new facts and new knowledge. But just like children, you know, we are petty. We claim credit. We want attention. We don't play well with others. We're just, you know, so you can't, there's no such thing as a single-edged sword, as far, as far as I know. I mean, I like that analogy. There's no single-edged sword. So you have to take the good with the bad. Some of the bad you're going to take, with the great intellectual merit of science, is that there are going to be people who, you, know, as, you, know, you could say, get high on their own supply. You know, that they're so in love with this notion of, uh, of the uh, correctness of their theory, of their model, of their data, that they tend to, knowingly or not, not fraudulently, but just scientifically, will tend to exclude disconfirming evidence opposing their claim. Or they might go ahead with a publication without fully vetting all the other alternatives, and that will be done in a desire to confirm and have their result get out in front and avoid being scooped. It's a totally normal uh, human phenomenon that we all have to be on guard against as scientists. The problem is, you know, when you're a politician, I hope, and a lawyer and so forth, you get trained in ethics. Doctors get trained in ethics. Journalists get trained in ethics. We have no classes on scientific ethics. There's no class in like, yeah, oh, Brian, when you, when, you shouldn't, like, I get trained in, like, <laughs> I shouldn't sexually harass my students you know, I get training in uh, in implicit bias and all these other things. I don't get training in necessarily, you know, like, here's the situation. You've got a graduate student, and you want him to get a faculty job, and this paper has to come out really soon. Oh, but we haven't finished all the all the vetting, but the, the probability of him getting a faculty job is lower than him getting into the NBA. Uh, and actually, sure, there's ten times as many NBA players as people that do what I do. Uh, and so maybe we should just, like, I know it's right. Come on. Let's go through Is that ethical? What if I withhold it and he doesn't get the job and we're right? So there's all sorts of ethical constraints. We never really pay heed to that. And I think it's a detriment to science and the practice of being a good scientist.
0: Yeah, that really surprised me when I read that in your book, because it seemed to me like if there's any field where you really need ethics, I mean, it's at least as much as any other field, it's science where um, you're dealing with things that really do affect the way people look at the world. Yes, and um, and a lot of times it seems like maybe people are rushing to get things done in a way that is detrimental, or they're withholding information from other people that may be beneficial to society as a whole. Yeah, um, that that really did surprise me.
1: Yeah, it happens, and, and we have this model of scientists as as just completely you know a ineffable, uh, b otherworldly. Uh, but as I said before, there's no correlation between knowledge and wisdom. I'm sure you know tremendous numbers of wise people. You can be wise and have n- little knowledge. You can have knowledge and be, uh, and be very unwise. Yep. I-, I give the example of a, of a very famous Nobel Prize winner in, in chemistry in the 1900s named Fritz Haber. And Fritz, uh, he invented the, the process that General Mills uses to fortify and produce all their fertilizer uh, for all their crops and uh it's called the haber bosch process and it produced ammonia And it was very difficult to do we we take for granted how hard it was just to make basic things like cereal and and food 100 years ago but he invented a way to feed the world and later this chemical process uh was developed further and uh he became incredibly wealthy and he fought uh uh he was conscripted he was jewish but he was conscripted by the german army to fight in world war one against the the allies and the Axis powers, and he developed uh, uh, some of the most uh, deadly chemical we- uh, weapons ever employed, and that was against the you know pre-existing um, the Vienna Convention or whatever it was back then, before the UN, obviously. And um, and not only that, just it's one thing that all oh, like you know Fermi invented the atomic bomb, but but Fermi didn't go on the Enola Gay and drop it and like detonate it. Like this guy went in the trenches and like personally wanted to witness, along with. Five other Nobel Prize-winning chemists and physicists. What German science could do in killing the Allied powers, and so and later, tragically, you know, his uh, a lot of his family were killed in World War II in the Holocaust by a product that his factory later made called Zyklon mm-hmm. B. So you know, it's like just the fact fact that this nationalist for Germany, it was turning his knowledge, which was supreme. But it absolutely doesn't correlate with wisdom. And so I think we have to be very careful about what we think about scientists. I, I made a video not too long ago about, you know, um, knowledge is not equal to wisdom. And and in it, I talk about, you know, the dangers when scientists become political scientists. Um, not like, you know, <laughs> uh, political scientists, but they become political mm-hmm. politicized yeah. scientists. I think it's very dangerous for science because the wind's... Can shift and what one administration or one Congress can be supportive of, it should be very, very uh, incumbent upon the scientists to tread extremely lightly and never, ever mistake their knowledge for wisdom. I I always make the point, every four years since I've been alive and aware, there'll be a petition signed by 70 Nobel Prize winners that endorse a policy. Typically, they'll endorse, uh, uh, I've never seen them endorse a Republican for president, now, I don't. I don't care. Like you know, or, or anybody else. Only a Democrat. So like, okay. Yeah, so that's highly politicized. And furthermore, they'll endorse things that they have. Like uh, they'll be a cosmologist, for example, will endorse a policy about uh, about the Iran nuclear deal, or about uh, the Echo New York Health Alliance and why Peter Daszak or this guy or that uh, was uh, was a COVID created in a lab. Uh, what does a cosmologist do? So we conflate. Knowledge with wisdom. And I think it's very detrimental, not only to the public, certainly to the public, but to science as well.
0: Oh, absolutely! And you're taking people who don't necessarily have any expertise in a particular field, but then they're using uh, maybe their um, gravitas from being a Nobel Prize winner to to say like,
1: "This is what 100%. this is
0: what I think about something else." Uh, let's take a, a caller. Yeah, you got um, Joe. see if
2: Joe's there. Hello, can you hear me? Hey, yep. Joe. Hi, Justin. Hi, Brian. Um, Hi. Yeah, I. so I used to be in uh, academia myself. Um, I was a grad student at uh, Ohio State. Sorry, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> Go
1: blue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> O-H. uh,
2: but yeah, I was, I was also in astronomy and I found that one of, you know, the favorite pastimes of uh, you know, my professors there was, uh, to complain about NSF grants and writing NSF grants and reviewing NSF grants and why their NSF grants got rejected. Um, as, you know, basically everyone seemed to have their own opinions for, you know, how projects in, in science could be funded. So I was kind of curious mm. to get, um, both of your opinions about, you know, kind of what works well with their current system and, you know, what could be improved.
1: I think it's vitally important to have <clears throat> to have public support of science. Uh, the 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 challenge is that scientists haven't been very good at, um, for lack of a better word, I'll say monetization. But I, I don't mean like oh, I'm pissed off because I didn't get rich. Like Einstein died, you know, comfortable. He wasn't he wasn't poor, uh, but uh, or Charlie Towns who invented the laser or the the, the people that invented the transistor. Uh, that we're using to communicate right now. Um, and or, or the Internet was created, you know, courtesy of, of physicists in, in multiple locations. So uh, CCD cameras that we use in our iPhones. Um, so we've been very bad at um, repaying the basic physics and science that goes into the technology that we take for granted. So sometimes it's said that the problem with physics is that it creates technology. And so we just take it for granted and, and like almost view it as an obligation that we'll just keep producing more technology, just shovel money in here, and we'll get out these crazy results. Uh, but what I'd like to understand is whether or not we could have a society that incentivizes technology via, you know, and the oldest method known, which is that you know scientists should be remunerated for what they do. Um, and but also to get an increased budget for science courtesy of the technological applications. And this is not so crazy. In other words, I'm saying fund NSF with more money. Where do you get that money? You get that from charging the purveyors of the technology invented by physicists, for example, or biologists, um, charging them some uh, royalty or licensing fee or whatever, and then make the grant process much easier. So I might spend six months working on an NSF grant like your professors with a 8% chance of being successful. Uh, Those are horrible odds and and you're wasting, you know, not only, you know, the, the, the precious, you know, resource of, of, you know, people's time, but also the, the kind of network of of support staff and bloating of bureaucracy that we have to maintain in order to get those publications and then review them. And then, so uh, I'm not saying fund everything, but I'm saying we could do a lot better by, Reincentivizing more and more discoveries, but also feeding back in a positive feedback loop some of the uh, profits, if you will, back into funding basic science. So the kind of science that I do, not necessarily looking for uh, new applications. I think that would benefit – it always has historically. I think that would benefit uh, society very much.
0: Yeah, and for my part as a libertarian, you won't be surprised to find that I prefer private – Funding of research, but to the extent there is government involvement, I think it needs to be basic research, and not uh, the government essentially uh, putting its its finger into uh, the pot, saying this is where the money has to go. Um, we, the government, think this is valuable, and we disagree with uh, these scientists who want to work on other things. I don't think the the government is really in a position to determine what is valuable to society and what's not. And so to the extent um, the government is involved, I'd want it to be involved uh, in a way that uh, is fairly neutral. And I don't know the ins and outs of how the, the funding mechanism work. Brian would, would know more, more about that than I do. But, um, but I would want the government to not be uh, essentially tipping the scales one way or another.
1: Yep yeah the, the the issue is that you know the and the, there's a benefit to the model that you propose, which is that you know private um you know industry let me say private philanthropy right now there's almost no analog of what used to be very common in America, which was things like bell laboratories uh, and and other uh for profit entities, which is where the cell phone was invented and which is where the laser and maser uh, came to be, and the transistor, and and uh, as well as many other completely impractical scientific inventions, uh, which will never have use or patentability. The problem is that, you know how do you uh, incentivize an industry to fund, you know, research into the Big Bang? Now it turns out the Big Bang you would never have done this, but but you would never foreseen it. In that we found the Big Bang's afterglow, which is what I study: the cosmic microwave background radiation. We found these photons because of the first telecommunication satellites ever launched. It was found serendipitously. We kept looking at these satellites uh, from Bell Laboratories and elsewhere, and they kept seeing the early Echo satellites in the 1960s, right after the space race um, had kicked off, and they couldn't get a clean enough signal from them, and that was because they were being bathed by a background of heat, which itself emanates from the Big Bang. Now, no one would have predicted oh, we just need to fund, you know, the study of radio astronomy and that will then detect <laughs> or, or fund, you know, the uh, satellite technology and then we'll discover the Big Bang and that will kill off the alternative steady state model. No one could have foreseen that. And yet that's what happened. So what do you do with, like, thoroughly impractical research where there is no profit margin, there's no company that could be, you know, I mean, is 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 Facebook going to invest in uh, new forms of topological matter that exist in one dimension. No, they'll, they'll never do that. It makes no sense. I wouldn't advise them to do it. I think there is a role um, historically, from the time of Galileo even, uh, where you've had uh, a role which is partially driven by a profit motive on the part of the inventor or scientist, and then partially by the military. Typically, it's been the military needs of the government. And so all these things, Justin, the stealth technology, all those emerged from uh, from physics. Obviously, communication, coding, encryption, telecommunication, all those things came from physics. So you can't say pour money in here and you'll get out two times the money on the outside. But, um, uh, you know, historically, there have been links between a nation's excess capital in that they're not fighting a war. You know, I always say um, the only reason I do what I do is because we're not currently fighting like some huge war where all the physicists are conscripted uh to work on some manhattan project part two um so we have a peace dividend that eventually pays back to uh to the benefit hopefully of the citizenry and and also having the most advanced science which we're in the danger of losing for a variety of reasons our edge in in uh in many different fields um is quite good and then the last thing you know to, to speak about that, if you look at, like, Elon Musk and what he's doing with privatization, none of that, it's completely opposite of what NASA's doing, right? NASA's doing exploration, they're do, building the web telescope, they're doing pure science, and Musk is doing for profit, eventually, you know, hoping for tourism and, and terraforming and whatever else he's doing, that has no impact on understanding the laws of nature better. So, um, I think both can bloom, but, but I, I don't Think that we can uh, do one alone to the exclusion of the other. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think the stuff that Musk and Bezos and others are doing can maybe help in the sense that it increases excitement about what goes on in the cosmos? That oh, sure, people yeah. are people are more interested in it if they think, well, I might be flying to Mars or whatever. They might start to think about this stuff and say that this this is what deserves more funding, more research, more investment.
1: I don't think it's exact as Mark Twain said, you know, history doesn't repeat but it rhymes. I don't think it's exactly like the space race, you know, uh for example, this is mainly driven by, you know, not international competition, cold war, uh, uh bragging rights, etc. As many things were driven including the race to get to the south pole first that I talk about in my book. Um these things were not initially undertaken for commercial or, you know, reason, reasons as Musk is trying to do. Um, and I salute him for doing it. On the other hand, he is doing innovative work with like artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science. Those are byproducts of the project of Tesla, certainly. <clears throat> Less so with, maybe with SpaceX, but I don't know. Um, and certainly there'll be some engineering innovations, and, and reusable rockets are uh, incredibly important. Um, it's too soon to tell, but there are echoes of of the nationalistic aspects, but I think it's it's changed a lot, and but what I think is so interesting is that we can have, you know, conversations about these things. Like, I was talking to somebody recently, um, actually, yeah, it was Eric Weinstein on my podcast, uh, who's, uh, been on call in a couple times. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, and he and I were talking, and I was like, even the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, aliens, um, life forms, UFOs, extra, you know, terrestrial phenomena, that can actually inform things, or at least in a philosophical sense, as completely out of left field as abortion and human life and things like that. And I find that really fascinating in that it can really open your mind to uh, a different way of thinking about the universe from first principles. In other words, we talk about life, like, you know, the Roe versus Wade, and and, and uh, I'm I'm so glad that you've been a real voice of reason, uh, on, on Twitter, which is, you know, where I spend, uh, most of my time, uh, at least in the bathroom. So you're with me in the bathroom. It's it's so nice. I'm sure you're really pleased to have that uh, accolade, but, um, but we talk about like what, you know, when does life begin as a conception, you know, everybody believes that life, you know, didn't exist before conception. Like that doesn't make sense. And everyone believes that, you know, there's now a baby, you know, and the baby's five years old. So somewhere between, you know, these two extremes, Life was crea- but what if we go even further back? Like, how did life begin? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what would it mean to discover life on another planet? How can we go about doing that? I think that's what's missing from the Musk enterprise, and I give the guy tremendous, you know, props. But, um, but you know, personally, what interests me so much is not you know going to Mars, but maybe getting a different perspective of what life is on Earth.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's go to um, David, our next caller. Yeah. David, you're on. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Hey,
3: David. Uh, I thought I wasn't going to be one of those idiots.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, first let me say it's a real honor to talk to both of y'all. Thanks. Um, obviously, Dr. Keating is is an eminent uh, physicist and Justin I've been I've actually been following you since probably two thousand eleven, places like uh, the Daily Poll. I really appreciate how you've been trying to shine a light on how our government works and not just saying the kind of platitudes that other people say there's too much money in politics or oh they don't listen to us. But like being really specific about the mechanisms because I think um you know I kind of think like a physicist. I think the mechanisms of how something happens are what matter when you're trying to fix it. And uh I'm wondering to that end, if either of you are familiar with the work of a psychiatrist named uh Ian McGilchrist. He wrote a book called The Divided Brain and some other works as well.
1: I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar, I don't I'm not, I'm not
3: familiar with it yeah. either. Okay, well, I would encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, it's just essentially about brain lateralization, so neurology. Um, he's got lots of interviews if you don't want to buy the book. Um, he's got uh, particularly an interview with Jordan Peterson, who I'm sure you're all familiar with. is mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. clinical psychiatrist, psychologist, mm-hmm. and uh, also an interview with um, – uh, I'm forgetting his name – Uh, The oh, uh, uh, I can't think of his name right now. Put myself on the spot, Uh, but he's a neurologist. He's a a Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. If you use Sam Harris, is really good as well. But it it kind of goes through different experiments on you know (laughs) if you shut down half the brain, what does it do, and like how brain functions work in terms of how very, very different left and right hemispheres are. How, how you perceive information, what information you're capable of perceiving, and how you deal with that information. It's really interesting stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: All right. Thanks, David. Thank you. So, Brian, one of the things, uh, one of many things I found interesting in your book, which I really loved, by the way, um, your you. book, Losing the Nobel Prize, Was you talk a little bit about your journey, um, your life journey, and in a sense coming back to Judaism, I don't think you were necessarily – I don't know if you were aware you were from Jewish ancestry as a kid. Were you aware of that? But you were raised Catholic,
1: right? Correct, yeah. My, My parents are biologically Jewish. Uh, they, you know, went to uh temple, you know, maybe once a year on Christmas, I don't know, we'd have Chinese food, that was about it. And then when they got divorced, I became adopted by my uh, adopted father, <clears throat> uh, who is devoutly Roman-Irish-Catholic. And I actually became an altar boy, where I was, uh, uh, for the years in which a normal Jewish boy would be preparing for his bar mitzvah at age 13, I was Passing a collection plate in a Catholic church in Chappaqua, New York, and uh, I loved it. I loved the uh, the kind of uh, the, the humor, the, the the piety when appropriate, but then the celebratory, festive atmosphere. Holidays were so much more vibrant and vivid than you know getting to eat some some dehydrated cardboard type bread once a year on Passover. Um, And, you know, as a not so sophisticated kid from age seven to to later, the kind of the trappings, the creature comforts, Christmas, Easter, and just the warmth and gregarity of my adopted family uh, made me much more akin to it. And I wanted to go all the way. I'm kind of a purist. So I wanted to become a a priest. And uh, I thought, how's the, uh, what's the closest I can get to being a priest at age 13? It's like an altar boy. Uh, and then right around that time, two things happened. One, I hit puberty and I developed an interest in the opposite sex and, uh, and realized that if I became a priest, I would have certain certain uh, things forbidden to me uh, by vows of celibacy. Uh, and the other thing was that I fell in love with astronomy. And at that time, I got my first telescope and was just transfixed by kind of the aspects of mental teleportation that even an inexpensive telescope gets somebody. So I always say, like, I really need to go into business and make telescopes. But uh, but for $50, you and anybody listening can get for themselves or their children off of Amazon. I have a link on my website, briankeating.com, to, like, some basic telescopes at different price ranges. But you can say the exact same stars, planets, craters... Uh, rings of Saturn, you can see all the same phenomena that Galileo saw four hundred and ten years ago, and what 's so interesting about that is that i could you know I could tell you about the discovery of the Higgs boson in two thousand and twelve, uh, but you won 't feel what it felt like. There was no like discovery moment as we talked about earlier. it takes mm-hmm. tens of years sometimes. there was no aha moment when the scientist said There it is, Eureka, but for Galileo he was the first human being to ever turn a telescope to the sky. And so he captured all these phenomena. He was the first human being to experience the, the, the visual impression of the moon's craters, of the valleys, of the volcanoes, of the magma, all the stuff that we now take for granted, the rings of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter that he discovered. And you can feel, Justin, the exact visceral emotion that he felt when you see it for the first time it doesn't matter how many billions of people have seen it before you you will experience it and you'll have the exact same feeling of bewilderment that he felt uh, and that's unique so astronomy is unique in that sense maybe you know you look in a microscope you see some microbes i don't know I, I i like it but but people are more blown away by looking through a telescope and mm-hmm. that's with a 50 telescope from the middle of detroit you can do it anywhere on earth you won't be able to see like the hubble space telescope quality images but you'll see plenty just don't look at the sun you know, with your remaining good eye. Uh, and, and so I feel like it's a, t- it's a form of, of time travel. It's psychological, emotive travel. It's visceral travel. And uh, this man, Galileo, became my hero and my deceased mentor and uh, took me along with him on these kind of rides. And at the time, in the 1980s, I realized that he was persecuted by the same Catholic church that I was serving in. And uh, I started to feel a little uncomfortable about that. And the more I learned in this time in the mid-1980s, he hadn't been pardoned, and actually he's never been pardoned. They've never issued a formal apology for the uh, imprisonment that he was subjected to under um, penalty of death, essentially, and torture, and then death, you know, I guess, you know, death and then torture is not as bad as torture and then death, but he was subject to that threat. So he recanted his claim that the, uh, that the earth orbited around the sun, which is revolutionary. And I couldn't feel like I could be a part of a movement and that unsophisticated mentality that I had uh, as a 13-year-old. And, you know, it's funny. It's like most of the atheists that I know, Jewish atheists, I'll just speak like we heard about Sam Harris— and we've heard, you know, I'm sure you've, you've you know, of, uh, Lawrence Krauss and, and and many others, Carl Sagan. These are all Jewish atheists, um, and they are militant in their atheism in in most cases. And yet, and yet, they have at best a 13 year old's understanding of what their religion of their birth was. And I too had only a 13 year old's conception. And I always say, I said to Lawrence Krauss when he was on my podcast, I said, Lawrence, do you even know what like israel means the word israel means and he said no and i said well that's ironic lawrence because you are an israelite he's like what are you talking about i'm not born in israel i said no no the word israel in hebrew means one who fights with god islam means submission to god and that's we can have a different discussion about that but israel means fights with god that's kind of weird and that's all he does And that's all, you know, these these militant Jewish atheists do. So they're actually kind of forsaking the tradition that has been combative, argumentative, um, (laughs) dyspeptic, um, but it's a great legacy to explore and to dismiss it with only a 13-year-old's understanding, or worse, for me, a 7-year-old's understanding, I think is, is slightly, at least philosophically impoverishing. So, you know, I'm not I'm certainly not in favor of mandatory religious education you know. No, but to dismiss it as simple fairy tales, fables and, and so forth, I think that really can do a disservice. Um and I'm lucky in that I came back to the religion of my birth, which is Judaism, only later in life when I had a more adult, sophisticated ecumenical after after having, you know, encountered Catholicism so seriously for so long. And knowing the best atheist and feeling like You know, is Bill Nye, is that like the best they got? Like, um, you know, and again, I call myself a devout agnostic, a practicing agnostic in that I know I don't know and I don't believe it's possible to prove existence of God. But I believe that you shouldn't desist from the task of wrestling, fighting with God, if you will, even if you're an atheist. And, and, And I've had wonderful conversations with atheists and theists from all different religions. And I do feel like and it's ironic, atheists from all different religions. But uh, it's it's like people believe in the flat Earth mm-hmm. all over the globe. Uh, it's a mixed metaphor, but I think it's the most interesting, you know, single subject philosophically that I can study. It happens to dovetail nicely with what I do, which is study the origin of the universe.
0: And in your profession, there are probably a lot of people who are atheists. Oh am yes, I, am I right about that? Is
1: it... something percent of the National Academy of Sciences is a, declared either atheist. Or you know, active atheist, or doesn't believe. But
0: uh, speaking as someone who is religious, I'm an Orthodox Christian. Yeah, right. But I, um, I don't see incompatibility between religious beliefs and and science. Uh, I don't see why there needs to be any any incompatibility. Um, I, I'm a person who's always believed that. We cannot possibly understand uh, everything about the universe. We can't possibly understand everything about God. The, in, and so, those things are compatible. Uh, why? Why should we think of them as incompatible? I, I don't. When I when I uh, read the Bible, I don't think this is every last word about God. This is the every last bit we need to know about God. I think this is something that is presented to us as human beings uh in a simplified way to work with our simple brains, yeah you know our I our simple abilities and and so I don't see them as incompatible. Um, how does this affect the way you look at the origin of the universe? Is it your view that uh it could be? the case that there is a God or something at the beginning of, of, I, I don't know if time is the right word, but at the, at the very beginning that brought this all about or something that has existed forever.
1: Yeah. So, so I just want to go back to what you said about this, this like kind of dual commonality between the existence or, or, or potential existence of God and the existence of the universe and I had a conversation with my first ever podcast guest uh, on my podcast called Into the Impossible. Uh, and it was uh, with the late, great Freeman Dyson, uh, who is responsible for so many things, not the vacuum, but uh, for things like Dyson spheres and quantum electrodynamics and uh, it was just a genius type person. And he declared himself to be agnostic. And I asked him the same question you asked me a second ago. And he said, these are great mysteries. Like, the existence of, the, of the, an all-powerful, omniscient being is a great mystery. And the existence of God, uh, or of the universe, is a great mystery. And what could be more delightful to pursue than the pursuit of, of answering mysteries? Now, I always say that there's a difference. There's a difference between a mystery and, um, and a puzzle. Like, a puzzle has a solution. Like, uh, one of my kids is really good with a Rubik's Cube, and I'm not so good at them. Um, but, uh, but there's a solution to it. It's like when you took classes in, in college, like, you might not get 100%, but there's, there is an answer, and, like, maybe you didn't get it, but there's, it could be solved. Puzzles are like that. Mysteries are potentially unanswerable, right? The what, what, did, you know, what happened the Tuesday before the Big Bang? We may, there may not be an answer to that question, According to Stephen Hawking, that question doesn't even make sense. It's an ill-posed problem. Like, what is zero divided by zero? Um, you can write it down, you can ask it, but you can't... It's not actually cogent in a logical sense. So you ask that question that exactly the way... Answer that question the exact same way as Freeman Dyson. And I feel that it's kind of the ultimate hubris to say, like, do I believe in God? Like, I'm actually... I joke about it. I'm more interested if God believes in me... You know, because that would mean that a God exists, um, but but b, how do I want to live my life? Um, there's the kind of you know very ethereal, literal, ethereal approach to you know these great questions of ultimate meaning: Does God exist? You know, how did the universe come to be? How did life come from inanimate chemicals? How did consciousness emerge from basic life forms? You know, how do we go from bacteria to Bach? You know, or from rocks to Rachmaninoff, I can do this all night. Uh, but the but the the issue that you know is being raised is these are great you know chicken or egg type problems that are potentially unanswerable. But that shouldn't stop us from trying. And so when I arg- when I had this conversation with Freeman, I said, "Oh, wait a second, but Freeman, um, you call yourself an agnostic, which means unknowable. It's not. Uh, but but I ask you, what 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 do you do on Sundays?" Oh, I you know I read the paper. I go for a walk, and you know he you know he was at the Institute for Advanced Study where Einstein did his great. You know he's a proper British gentleman, delightful person. Yeah, I go for walks. I go yeah. And I said, oh, so you don't go to church? And he said no. And I said, well, how would like an intelligent observer just looking down from space? He looks at you. He looks at Richard Dawkins, and you both don't go to the same church. Like what functionally distinguishes you from an atheist? You call yourself an agnostic, meaning there's a differentiation. And he didn't have a good answer. Um, for me, I try to answer that question. So I am not a, the, uh, you know, a theist in the sense that I have this perfect faith, as Maimonides used to speak about, uh, and I believe in certain uh, you know, conditions will come. Um, and, and I have wrestled and continue to wrestle with the existence of God, as you posed. But, um, but I also practice. So I, I go to a, a temple. I uh, observe the laws of kosher. I do, um, you know, I do not work on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, um, and all these things are selfish in a way. They accrue to a benefit to me, in some sense or another. Especially the Sabbath. Like I think anyone who works seven days a week is a slave, um, and it may be a slave to a worthy cause, politics. It may be to to um, to you know feeding the poor, whatever. But you cannot do that and have, uh, and have a, a healthy mental, um, you know, future. So for me, it has selfish benefits, but it also has intangible benefits. And it at least forces me to contemplate that I, my priors could be adjusted if, um, and not in the simple mind. Like I talked to Krauss, like, what would it take for you to believe in, you know, steelman the other uh, opposing argument? He said, well, God would have to reveal himself to me. I'm like, that is so simplistic. I mean, there's a good example. You'll know this as a practicing you know, religious Christian. The Jews left Egypt, according to the Torah itself. And by the way, there's no book on earth. There's no anti-Semitic screed that's as negative about Jews as the Torah. That's the Old Testament. It's, it's full of like the complaints and the stiff-necked people and the unworthy, the lowliest people on earth. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. But um, But after the Jews leave Egypt, three days later... They start complaining that they had this great food in Egypt and why did you take us out? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? The the Jews complained to Moses that you had to bring us into the desert. And then 40 days later, um, after witnessing splitting of the sea, blood, boils, all the things that happened during Passover, um, they complain and they start worshiping a molten calf made of gold that they themselves made. It's not like, it didn't like appear. They made it. Aaron... The uh, priest, uh, brother of, of Moses. So, like, what do you think, Lawrence Krauss? Or, you know, who's a friend? You're you're going to believe more than these people? If, even if you believe the story, it's telling us. We have a deep need to worship idols. And I think to be aware of that. And your mm-hmm. idol could be Harvard. It could be billionaire. It could be, um, you know, being a congressman. It could be whatever. We all have our promised lands. And we all have to reconcile that most of us don't get into our promised land but it shouldn't stop us from striving to do so
0: yeah as a kid i always found that um that story about worshiping the golden calf and and all that very stunning because of the same reasons you talked about you know like uh, they had just witnessed all all these great miracles and and then still turned to this you know but but that's yeah right. it is it is true that people seek out idols and that's not an unusual thing actually um, we see it all the time in our lives today. So is it your perspective that it's impossible to figure out why existence exists? <laughs> why why there is existence? Uh, because any answer will necessitate something else causing it. Like if you said... God is the reason for existence. You might ask, why is there a God? Um, Mm -hmm. Where did God come from and who created God? Uh, And, and, and so any answer is going to run into that problem.
1: Yeah, I I think it's true. And again, it's, you know, I always want to be cautious because I have a hubristic side, of course, but you know, these are questions, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, Maimonides, people have been wrestling with these questions for literally thousands of years people smarter than me, Um, but that shouldn't cause me to not, you know, to be dispassionate about the core issue Mm -hmm. because I can't know, you know, my podcast is called Into the Impossible. It's a quote from Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who I am the associate director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. And he had all these laws, one of which I'm sure you're familiar with, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Another yep. one that you might want to drop on some of your former colleagues in Congress is that for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. <laughs> and then uh, a third, a third uh, law is the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. And I like to use a quote from—it's uh, actually from the Book of Genesis. And again, I don't care if you read it as literature. I'm not a literalist, but you could read it as literature, and it's incredibly poetic and thematic and and and. Really, you know, pointing to lessons that, uh, we could all learn from, you know, whether you have family strife in your family, I doubt, you know, like your brother tried to kill you and successfully did so. Yeah. Like how did, you know, or, or your other tw- 11 brothers threw you into a pit to be devoured and sold you into slavery. Like I, I, no matter how bad your family is, the Bible's here to tell you it's not, it could be worse. Um, so one of the stories is that Abraham was childless, uh, for many years and, and his wife, Sarah, and, um, and then one day God says, you know, leave your country, go to this place I'm going to show you, and I will make your, um, your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. Okay, well, that's weird. And then God says, you know, just to emphasize, he goes, go out and count the stars, and if you can count them, such will be your offspring. And this is a guy is like 90, according to the, you know, uh, the, his wife's 80, you know, she, is, uh, she didn't have any hope of, of producing children at that point and but the hebrew has a command form which english doesn't so um so if i say uh, go out and count this i'm i'm ordering you it's a mitzvah it's a commandment that's what mitzvah means that good deed it means commandment so he's ordering abraham go out there and do it and then abraham tries to do it now it's impossible i i go through a calculation in one of my videos on my youtube channel are you talking about how many stars are there how many grains of sand are there how, it's just impossible even if you count One per second, it will take you tens of billions of years to do it. So it's impossible. But uh, Abraham attempts it anyway. And I think that's kind of presaging this notion that you it shouldn't stop you, your inability to see where the end is. When I started graduate school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I would end up or what I would be. I would be a tenured professor no, I had no idea about it. And it seemed impossible. It seemed improbable. And, and, and hindsight bias and survivorship bias and authority bias, all these fun biases that I as a scientist have, you know, it's 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 easy to look back and say, oh, it all made sense. But it's very difficult to think about how can you think about these ultimate concepts, God, universe, et cetera. Well, we can all do our part. Um, we can all, you know, contribute to this corpus of knowledge and perhaps convert as many mysteries into puzzles as possible. Mm -hmm.
0: Let's go to our next caller. It's uh, Brandon.
2: Okay, can you guys hear me?
0: Yeah, hey, Brandon.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Justin and Brian, for doing the podcast and for taking this call. I've got one question for each of you. My question for Justin is... In regards to the Constitution, uh, the U.S. Constitution only mentions the word science once. And it's in the, the Article 1 about the legislative branch. And it says that Congress can support the arts and sciences. And then there's a, an appendage there at the end of that clause basically saying, um, you know, by making sure that inventors can have, you know, r- the rights to their inventions, which I always kind of interpreted as th- they're referring to patents there. So my question for Justin is whether there's anything beyond that particular clause in the constitution um through which the the government has a a role to play in supporting science other than that and my question for brian is what are you most looking forward to in terms of new discoveries or new information that we may um come to discover from the new james webb space telescope thank you guys
0: yeah thanks so uh, and brian mentioned this earlier there are obviously areas where the federal government does have authority such as defense where inevitably you're going to have some investment that goes into science. There are other arguments one could make that I think would not be a, a stretch constitutionally for for most people. I might quibble with it, but I think you, you could um, at least make the argument that spending that is generalized, that is uh, broadly applicable – for the general welfare is authorized. Now, I'm not going to make that argument here, but I think someone could read the Constitution and think that. When uh, when you read that spending for the general welfare is authorized, you could make the claim that what is not authorized is spending on particular projects that benefit, uh, you know, particular groups. So. If you have some kind of spending that broadly benefits every person in the United States, that would be authorized, whereas if you were just building a bridge for one community, that would not be authorized. So those are the kinds of arguments I think a person could make. Um, For me, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I think someone could, could conceivably make that argument.
1: So uh, you asked me about uh, James Webb Space Telescope, which is launched on Christmas, after 20 years of development and 10 billion dollars just to construct a uh, quite massive thing that you know nobody other than a government could potentially undertake. Although you know it's only a quarter of what Elon's paying for Twitter, so maybe he could do it. A private entity could do it. Um, so I'm also interested in revealing the first. Uh, kind of objects in the universe in a whole set of different classes so there 's many different types of astronomical objects that Webb will have a unique um, perspective on. One is the earliest um, uh, stars and galaxies that ever formed because Webb is a infrared telescope, it can see things at longer wavelength which have been redshifted more by the expansion of the universe so it can penetrate the cosmos back to the existence of the very first luminous objects in the universe. So that's item number one. Item number two that I'm very excited about is the origin and evolution of exoplanets. Uh, Planets like the Earth and other solar systems that are um, complete and replete potentially with similar uh, atmospheres, maybe perhaps even continental dynamics and, and prospects that we could take as precursors for life. I happen to be a life uh, minimalist uh, uh, in that I only believe life exists on earth until proven otherwise. And I see no evidence that life uh, exists outside of the earth. I'm very, very uh, much in a minority of scientists who all seem to believe uh, for various reasons that life must be abundant and, and, uh, and profligate throughout the cosmos. I do not believe there's any evidence whatsoever to support that, but I'm happy to be proven wrong by observations by Webb of indicators and harbingers of the processes that we call life. The last thing I'm excited about is the observation of the very first uh, monster black holes in the universe that the James Webb Telescope can inventory. And we'll see courtesy of these long wavelength light rays that can penetrate the shrouding of dust and, and other effects I talk about in my book that obscure and present mirages and and, uh, obfuscate our search for the composition of galaxies, which bear um, some import on the properties of what's called dark matter and dark energy. Uh, And tomorrow, as a matter of fact, there's a huge announcement coming from a worldwide network of astronomical radio telescopes that have made what I think and will be, they're kind of cagey about what the announcement's going to be, Uh, But it will be an announcement about the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, some 30,000 light years away or more. And that galaxy has been gobbling up stuff for, for billions of years. And they may have made a movie showing the dynamics of the light that shrouds the actual core, the event horizon, of our own Milky Way's monster black hole. So I actually have a video about that on my channel Uh, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube, where I kind of go through anticipating what they'll show. And then tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock Pacific, 12 o'clock Eastern, I'm interviewing the leader of that project, uh, Dr. Shep Dolman from Harvard, and he and I are going to talk about the context of these amazing new results. So those are the three things I'm most excited about from Webb, including a shout out to uh, this black hole physics that's coming out tomorrow.
0: Brian, why do you think that – do you think that it's improbable that there is life outside of Earth?
1: I, I do for a very simple reason. I think I included in my gift uh, swag uh, um, shipment that I sent you. Um, so I'm holding here a meteorite – I was mm-hmm. until I dropped it – and I sent you a meteorite. Um, and there is a phenomenon, which sounds dirty, but it's not. It's called panspermia. And panspermia was coined also by Fred Hoyle. So I never got to close the loop on what Fred Hoyle, uh, why he called it the Big Bang. Apparently, it's a, uh, it's a derogatory or slang word in British English for an orgasm. So he wanted a pejorative term to put down the rival to his steady state theory. And he coined the term and had better branding. That branding stuck. And so now we all believe in the Big Bang Theory. There was a TV show. There's nothing called the steady state theory. Uh, but anyway, he also came with this panspermia model, which posits the following, just like the meteorite that I sent you. And by the way, I do a giveaway on my website. So if people go to briankeating.com and sign up for my mailing list, um, and uh, you will be entered into a competition to win one of the meteorites, just like the ones I sent to Justin. And these are 4.3 billion-year-old fragments of the protoplasmic embryonic solar system uh, that I will send to you. Uh, not using gravity and a meteor shower, but through the U.S. Postal Service. So, if you go to the website, you can sign up for that competition. And uh, these processes happen not just on Earth, but there are meteorites that land on Mars, for example, and there are meteorites that land on Earth that originated from Mars. If uh, if 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 you get me you know, uh, an appropriations bill and you get a line item for the Keating telescope. Justin, I'll I'll give you a fragment of Mars someday uh, if you can talk to your buddies about that. Or when you're president, I'll be your science (laughs) advisor someday, hopefully. Uh, May it be soon. But um, these meteorites cost 10 times or 100 times more than the meteorite that I sent you. Anyway, what does it show? It shows that material is exchanged efficiently throughout our solar system from the impact of heavy bodies impacting with uh, heavier bodies, and that ejects material from the surface of the planet. And that's how a fragment of Mars got to my laboratory here on Earth. <laughs> it took millions of years in the U.S. Postal Service and buying things on eBay, but that's how I got it. Now, and we know it's from Mars. I can uh, explain that some other time. But uh, but the fragment goes in reverse, too. Ma- Mars is a third the size of Earth. There's much more surface area. Uh, and life exists on Earth in very, very extreme locations, including in radioactive cores of the Chernobyl nuclear power disaster. there are There's life microbes that are living there. There's microbes in space. There's all sorts of thermodynamic vents on Earth where life exists that we wouldn't think life would exist in. Anyway, some of that material in the 4 billion year history of life on Earth, not just Earth, of life on Earth, approximately 3 to 4 billion years, we know that to be true, there have been uncountable pummelings of the Earth by heavy bodies, ejecting material from the Earth, containing biological material to every corner of our solar system. And yet, no matter where we look, even given the same amount of billions of years of evolution and the capacity for, for water on Mars and all sorts of other things, and other, we have no evidence that there's life even in our solar system, which we know has life, and that must constrain the ability and efficiency for life to spread. I believe once it starts on Earth, it should be dynamic and spread very rapidly, as it did. There's no continent that doesn't have life. And even space, there's you know life forms in the atmosphere. So what does this all mean? It means that the lack of observation is not this positive proof. That's why I said I'm in a minority, and it's not something I, a field that I work in. But it's a conjecture based on logic that things should have played out such that there should be Life in our universe. We don't observe any life outside of our, our our own planet, and that should be at least taken as evidence against the profligate nature of life in the universe. Hmm.
0: that's interesting. I would have thought that statistically, because there's so much universe out there, that it would seem probable that there's something. But yeah, I use that I,
1: analogy. People say that a lot. And Carl Sagan, I had his God. widow on my show, uh, Andurian who wrote the book Contact uh, with him that became a movie. And yeah, she and I talked a little bit about this as, as well in the podcast. But um, in that book, uh, in that movie, Jodie Foster uh, was the character playing a very famous real-life radio astronomer and friend of mine named Jill Tarter. Uh, at any rate, there's a sign. There's a, there's a portion where the father of this character, of Jodie Foster, he says, you know, she asked, well, is there life elsewhere? And she said, well, if not, it's an awful waste of space. And I feel like that's such a weak argument. Um, and, and I'm not like faulting or criticizing you for basically making that same <laughs> argument, but, um, but look at the earth. The earth has seven continents. I've been to six of them, including Antarctica. So I've yet to go to Africa, but that's it. And, um, Antarctica, you know, you could say, well, there's seven continents. And if someone just said there's seven continents and there's life on earth, you might think that, you know, something the size of the U.S., continental U.S. plus part of Canada, you know, a major fraction of the inhabitable space on dry land on earth should have life and even intelligent life, even technological, but there's zero. It's, it's really a couple microbes and there's a couple uh,
0: I think we lost your audio, Brian.
1: It's really quite improbable uh, just based on the space argument alone that we can make any claim about the probability of life. We can certainly say it's not excluded because there are other exoplanets just like the Earth, um, but um, but there's no need to necessarily claim based on space alone. By the way, most of space is completely inhospitable to even microbial life, you know, uh, let alone advanced technological life like us.
0: Yeah, I think it's possible we lost your audio for a few seconds. Yeah, there, my, I, my I,
1: wife is calling me to, to go pick uh, up one of my kids. So no problem. leave we'll, in a couple of minutes, Justin. Yeah,
0: we'll we'll wrap it up. And and I want to say thank you for that meter. I I, I have it displayed here, and I love that kind of stuff. Um, I wanted yeah, to ask yeah. you one more thing. Um, I recently saw Doctor Strange 2. I don't know if you've seen this movie, and no, I don't want to. Okay, no. I don't want to. I don't want to give any spoilers. So there are no. There not gonna be any spoilers here. But it's called the Multiverse of yes. Madness. So yes. So one of the things I try to understand, and this is a little bit more into the theoretical and I guess into the artistic uh, somewhat as well. Why is it whenever people depict multiverses, they are basically identical to our universe but like someone has a long beard or uh, (laughs) – is that what we would expect if there were multiverses? I mean we might expect a particular universe to be like that. Right. But you'd also expect an infinite variety of universes, right? And in many of them, um, most of them, you wouldn't exist. Yeah. Am I so, right about that, or is there something I'm not understanding? No, it's, about it's the- very right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so let me let me switch over. I'm going to go in my car. Uh, I'm going to go pick up my kid. But okay,
0: um, no yeah. problem. We'll we'll wrap it up in a minute. But you can okay,
1: go ahead. Yeah, let me stop the Zoom here uh, that you and I are talking on. But um, but you can still hear me on call and hopefully. Yep. Um, so, yeah so yes, so the multiverse, let me just uh, define what the multiverse is. The multiverse is a conjecture that comes out of certain models of physics that attempt to explain the properties of the universe um, that seem to be finely tuned for the existence of life, in particular of conscious life such as ours, uh, that is otherwise very improbable the The number of parameters that that can produce life forms like Ours uh, it has to be a very large number of constants of nature, of densities of matter, and so forth. And they have to be exquisitely tuned for life to be able to not only exist, but flourish here on Earth. So the existence of our life form means that there's some probability that these parameters are finely tuned. But another way of saying finely tuned is highly improbable. It's like landing on the green double zero on a roulette wheel. You know, 33 times in a row, that kind of level of precision and improbability has to be accounted for. So in order for an explanation to come about, other than an intelligent designer designed and dialed these tuned knobs, finely tuned knobs, that uh, astronomers, cosmologists, physicists have come up with another conception, which is that the universe that we call our cosmos is actually but one of a possible infinite number of universes. And in fact, it's, it's much harder to have there be like two universes than for there to be an infinite number of universes for technical reasons. So uh, what we have here is a situation where our universe may just be one uh, out of an infinite number of universes, just the same way our Earth might be one out of a nearly infinite, uh, but still finite number of planets in the observable universe alone. Now, artistic license makes it such that they have to depict things existing in the same number of dimensions as we have, etc. But there's no constraint, you know. So they, they always pick, yeah. They always have people, and and even in things in, that happen in our universe, like Star Wars. Remember in Star Wars, like uh, I think Luke asks um, Yoda, "How old are you?" And he says, "I am nine hundred and thirty years old." But wh- what does that mean? Is it Earth years? Why would there be Earth years in a galaxy far, far away? Why would it be 930? He looks kind of old. So there are all these questions. Even for a universe, quote-unquote, that isn't a multiverse. It's, it's part of our universe in a galaxy that's far, far away. So, um, so there are more mind-bending things that could happen. You could have, in another universe, there could be 1 plus 1 equals uh, 16Q, whatever that means. In other words, the laws of math, of logic, not just the physical properties could be completely unconstrained. And to me, that's a big problem that that supporters of the multiverse have to answer. But so far, to my satisfaction, they have not.
0: And when people are talking about multiverse, are they thinking about universes being side-by-side side in space? Or are they in different dimensions and overlapping within the same space? I'm, All of the above. I'm,
1: Yes, all of the above. There could be, for example, a universe uh, of a higher dimension. There could be a universe that existed prior to our universe. There could be a universe that exists, um, uh, that is a cycling, a universe that has different physical laws than we have. All these things are possible when you have the notion of infinity. We started off talking about the singularity and galaxies being closer to one another, um, but we never really you know, got into the the point... In that in physics, there's no such thing as infinity. There's no such thing of an infinite temperature of infinite density. And so too, there may not be something like infinite numbers of universes. That may not make sense, because we have no examples, at least we have no examples rather, of such a phenomenon. So for people to base movies on it, I think it's fine. The problem is people base their careers on it as well, and it's a little bit more fraught, if you ask me. So that's why I love to stick to experimental cosmology.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess at the movies we all just like to see someone with a beard or, you know, <laughs> slightly, slightly different form. But
1: but you're but, right. There's so much. Yeah. There's so much. There's so many movies. The Spider Verse. The There's millions of movies. There's a multiverse of movies about the multiverse. It's yeah. I, and I phenomenon. feel.
0: I feel like that's really popped up in the last decade where people are are into that and yeah. 100%. And showing up. But, well, uh, Doctor Brian Keating, I want to say thank you for being on. It's been a real joy.
1: It was my pleasure, Justin, and I hope maybe someday you'll reciprocate and come on the Into the Impossible podcast.
0: Oh, I'd be happy to. That would be great. Thanks again for everything you do. uh, Yeah, thanks for what you do as well.